Today I want to talk for a moment with you about the topic of ambition. Ambition. It's a concept that is certainly not always something associated with being good or positive. It conjures up associations with such sins as pride and stepping on others to rise up the ladder of success and caring only about self, etc. Scripture comments on that kind of ambition. It's called selfish ambition. Here's what James 3.16 says. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every evil thing. But there is an ambition that is not only allowed, but good. This is the ambition related to the desire for personal growth and personal improvement, and as well the desire, the ambition to have maximum impact in this world, whether we're talking about impact personally or as a family or as a church, that kind of ambition is a good thing. And we find the Apostle Paul talking about this kind of sanctified ambition in the passage we are studying today, Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. So once again, we are pausing our study in the Gospel of John to look at Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. As we will see in this text, the imagery that the apostle draws upon in this passage is that of running in a race, running in a race. Here is what Philippians 3, 12 through 14 says. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's briefly note together that the right kind of ambition that this text speaks about is marked in three ways. First, ambition that is biblical, that is sanctified, is marked by this. Number one, the right kind of dissatisfaction. The right kind of dissatisfaction. Verse 12 again, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Paul said there is something he did not possess. He had not been able to obtain it yet, and the it refers basically to what Paul has already said in this chapter, specifically what is summarized in verse 10. You can look back at verse 10, those familiar words where the prayer of his heart is this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's the it. That was Paul's great and lifelong desire to know Christ more fully, to love Christ more fully. In other words, to mature in that knowledge and that love. And that's what the term perfect means in our verse. He says, become perfect. That means to become mature or full grown, to be fully developed. Even the great apostle had not realized that goal in its entirety. 
So he was still pursuing it. So what's implied in these comments is a sense of dissatisfaction, which is surprising if you think about it. I mean, this is the the great apostle Paul. I mean, after all, there were many exceptional things about him. I mean, start with his conversion. What a story. His conversion took place in such an exceptional and unusual way. Paul was given visions from the Lord. He had many unique experiences. He certainly was gifted, had many abilities, and yet Paul wanted to grow even closer to Christ. He wanted to become more perfect, more mature. We would say this, Paul had not become complacent in his Christian life. He honestly evaluated his life, his ministry, his walk with Christ, and he wanted more. He wanted God to do more in him and through him. This is dissatisfaction, but it's a holy dissatisfaction. The right hand of ambition is marked by that. Second, ambition that is biblical is marked by this, number two, the right kind of determination. The right kind of determination. Now, this dissatisfaction that he sensed, rather than causing him to give up and quit, Paul's sense of incompleteness, we could say, compelled him onward. Look at verse 12, the little phrase, but I press on. That term, press on, is found here. If you look down at verse 14, it's found there as well. It's a great term for capturing his determination, or we could even say his resolve in this pursuit he was on. It was a hot pursuit, a hot pursuit of an objective with the purpose of of overtaking it. And as we just saw, the objective for Paul was becoming more spiritually mature, to desire, to know, to love, and to serve Christ more fully. But this resolve in pursuing this specific objective is captured in another expression as well in verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Even that phrase, one thing I do, expresses this intense, persistent focus. Paul is saying he was permitting nothing to divert him from this well-defined course he was on, on, this well-defined race he was in. It captivated him. It captivated his full attention. It demanded total and determined concentration. Now, I'm sure Paul had to deal with the temptation of distractions in his life and ministry just like we do. I'm sure he understood the tyranny of the urgent. You know what that is? Have you ever experienced the tyranny of the urgent? You know, perhaps maybe something like trying to have everybody over at your house on a Sunday and and having this to-do list, you know, each day. And as it gets closer to the day, there are things that become more urgent and necessary. Anyway, the tyranny of the urgent. He had news headlines to deal with. I mean, he didn't have the internet and social media and things like that, but there would have been the top news of the day. Listen, everything 
took a pale second place in his life to the one overarching goal that he was determined to pursue. All his thoughts, all of his emotions, his decisions were focused on the one thing. Now, as I mentioned, this is the imagery of a runner in a race. A runner has to be focused. A runner can't be running and yet get distracted by looking at the grass alongside of the track or the road and think, man, they need to mow this. Or he can't be looking at the other runners and thinking about them. He can't be examining the people in the stands to see who's there and who's not there. No, he's focused. There's a sense of determination that characterizes the runner. And the point is that such concentration is necessary for runners in the spiritual realm realm as well. In everyday life, potential distractions are all around us. They're numerous. I mean, some are worldly and sinful, but not all are. Not all distractions are wrong in and of themselves. Some are even legitimate. I mean, we have responsibilities at work and in the home, etc., that we have to fulfill. But regardless of the type, plenty of distractions can end up preventing us from seeking to grow spiritually and to mature. Therefore, we must develop this determination, this sense of resolve that is unyielding, that's purposeful. Or as 1 Timothy 4 verse 7 puts it, we must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. But note the two phrases that he uses to further explain Paul's determined pursuit. This pressing on that he's talking about is accompanied by forgetting on one side and yet reaching forward on the other. Verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Let's look at the forgetting side of this first. Again, a runner in a race is not supposed to be looking back either. You know, to maybe determine and and enjoy and think about the ground he's already covered. If he does, he'll lose his speed. He'll lose his direction and potentially the race itself. Instead, the runner has to keep his or her eyes on the finish line. Well, Paul's not saying that he never thought about the past. He's not saying he never evaluated his past ministry. I mean, by the time he had written this, he had known Christ and served Christ for 20 years or so. So in those 20 years, he had many past successes in his walk with the Lord. But he didn't let his mind dwell on these things. He didn't keep turning over in his mind the good old days. He didn't keep reminding himself of all of his achievements, nor did he continually recount even the special high points of his relationship with Christ because he knew that past experiences, past successes were no guarantee of anything in the future, no guarantee of future successes. But this forgetting includes past failures as well. He knew about failure. He knew that past failures are real, but he also knew that past failures did not mean there could be no future successes. The bottom line is, Paul refused to live in the past. 
He let the past be past, we say, both the good and the bad. And he constantly looked forward to the work that God still had for him. No complacency in his heart. No spiritual apathy. There shouldn't be complacency and spiritual apathy in our hearts either. Of course, we should be thankful for what the Lord has done in our past. Thankful for the past blessings and evidences of his grace in our lives. We rejoice over that. We rejoice over everything that God's done in our lives. I mean, it's proper to do that. It's proper to remember even years later after something how gracious God was in some circumstance. But we're not to live our lives longing for the past and past things. We're not to live our lives constantly in regret of past things because God is constantly leading us onward into new paths. We must move forward, and that progress requires this proper forgetting. But there's another side to the pressing on. It includes the forgetting, but there's the striving side, we can call it, the forgetting side and the striving side. That's captured in the term reaching forward. That's a very strong term that means to strain, to strive. So back to the running imagery that Paul was drawing on here. This is that picture of the runner straining, you know, every nerve and muscle. We see that sometimes, you know, in the Olympics when they zero in and focus in on a runner. I I love when they do that and they, they do it in slow motion. You know, they replay it and every single nerve and muscle is all toward the goal. And at the end, the runner may even stretch out his hand, you know, or lean forward with his body to to reach that finish line. So with this imagery, Paul says it's like that for him. It's as if he's living his spiritual life with with his body bent forward, his hands outstretched toward the goal, his eyes fixed upon it. He strenuously directed all of his energies, every thought, every emotion toward that. So he was certainly careful to be grateful to God, grateful for past and present graces, even what God was doing in his life as he wrote all this, but he fixed his heart, he fixed his spiritual eyes ahead on knowing Christ more fully. And he reached forward to do whatever was necessary to get there. And that's how we are to live. Fixing our gaze on the many things that God will yet be doing in our lives, anticipating them, looking forward to them. Progress in the faith requires this. Stretching, as it were. Stretching beyond the past. Stretching beyond even the present. Reaching out to seize every opportunity to grow in faith. And that means all the things that make up Christianity 101. Striving, reaching out to take advantage of any and every opportunity to study God's word. Every opportunity to worship and fellowship with other believers. Every opportunity to seek the Lord in prayer and to cast our burdens upon him and to express our dependence upon him. Every opportunity to confess the sin that we recognize that we've been convicted of and then to thank him for his forgiveness. This is the determination. This is the resolve that fits with godly ambition. Now, you have some quotes in today's Lord Lord Day's bulletin. You know, we put those in there sometimes, thoughts to ponder. I don't always call attention to them, but I will one today. It's the shorter of the two. 
Someone once asked David Livingstone when he was back in England briefly, had been serving for a long time in Africa, returned to England briefly. Somebody asked him, where are you ready to go now? Livingstone answered, I'm ready to go anywhere, provided it be forward. Godly ambition, sanctified ambition is marked by the right kind of dissatisfaction in your walk with Christ, the right kind of determination. And third, it's biblical when it's marked by, number three, the right kind of drive. The right kind of drive. And by that, I mean the motivation behind it all. I mean, the reason Paul invested his time and energies as he did, what what was it? What drove him like this? What motivated him? Go back to verse 12 for a moment. We have to comb through this text again because there are various phrases that that help us understand what what drove him. Verse 12 says, So that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Those terms lay hold and laid hold denote the idea of grasping, or apprehending something. That's what Paul was pressing on to do. He was dissatisfied with the level of spiritual growth that he had experienced. He wanted to grow more. So he was pressing on, he said, to lay hold of knowing Christ more fully. But the point is that he was driven to do that because, he says, Christ had already laid hold of him. To say it differently... The ultimate motivation for the pursuit of maturing in the knowledge of Christ is the fact that Christ has already apprehended us. This is Paul writing and he's saying that he had been apprehended by Christ. He had been captured by the Lord. Commentator Dennis Johnson puts it this way, Paul was a prisoner of war and glad of it taken hold of by Christ, and Christ would not let go of him. That's how our relationship with the Lord began. It wasn't because of something in us. He laid hold of us. That's what started the race for us. That's what put us in the starting blocks to begin with. And when that happened, when he laid hold of us, new spiritual life was created within us. God, by His Spirit and His power, made us who were spiritually dead to be spiritually alive. That's what it means to be born again. That's the doctrine of regeneration. And this is something to rest in, knowing that God is the one who initiated this. God is the one who first took hold of us. We find confidence in that. We find assurance in the grace we have already received in this past act of God's sovereign grace and mercy in our lives. So like Paul, this should not make us complacent. Resting in the sovereignty of God, resting in the fact that it's God who regenerated us, that God is the one who found us, pursued us, that God, by His grace, brought new life into our souls. Resting in that, that's what brings assurance in our lives. But what we're resting in is not meant to make us complacent. 
It's meant to be a stimulant for us to grow in what it means then to follow Christ more fully every day of our lives, to please him for all that he's done for us, and then to strive even to have the maximum impact in this world with whatever circumstances and opportunities and giftedness God has given you. Now look at verse 14. This same drive, this same motivation is expressed differently. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, the word translated goal is, once again, drawing on the imagery of a race. It's the idea of the finish line. In the race, the runner keeps his eyes focused on the finish line. That's the goal. And it's the side of that finish line that encourages the runner to keep going, even to put out more effort. Well, in a spiritual race, as we've already seen, Paul has reminded us that the goal is Christ himself, knowing him more fully loving him and serving him more passionately and growing to be more like him. That's the goal toward which Paul is striving and straining. And then he calls it a prize. That's a different word. And that's a word that simply means the mark or a target. In the races of Paul's day, there would be prizes. It usually was at least this, a a wreath of leaves, usually celery leaves. There possibly would be a little money, certainly could be some privileges and prestige for winning, but the prize that we pursue in the spiritual realm is much, much different than all that, much more valuable. It's something that we can enjoy even while the race is going on. I mean, the runner in the real race has to wait to the finish to receive any prize, but the prize in the spiritual race is something we enjoy even while we're running. Even while the race is going on, still there's joy in knowing Christ. There's a joy of having Christ, of being conformed to Christ. But he says for us, this prize is summarizing what Paul calls here the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That word call, is a technical term to refer to that act of God laying hold of us. God calling his elect sheep into a relationship with his son. Many verses use this term, but one that comes to mind is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul writing to the Corinthians, the church there, and there were a lot of problems in that church, and yet he still refers to them this way, the called ones. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what we refer to in theology as the effective call. The call of God, it's another way to say to how we began our race We were laid hold of by God. We were divinely called into this race. And the fact that Paul adds the modifying term here, upward, confirms that this call originates with God in heaven. It's that call, the upward call, the heavenly call. Plus, it even tells us the direction of the call. He calls us into this race, but it's an upward call in the sense that it's a call to a heavenward direction. So yes, we enjoy the fruit and potential of this call now in our walk with Christ, the joy of knowing him, but the full expression of it is not until the end of the race when we will see the Lord finally face to face, be conformed, to be like him, to be glorified, 
and dwell in his presence in eternity. This is the upward call. It begins with certainly in God's eternal mind, but at his appointed time, he lays hold of one of his elect and he puts them in the starting blocks and they begin the race. And this is a call that stays with them all their lives. It's an upward call all the way to the end. So if you view all this from the standpoint of a goal, that, that word goal sort of views it all from the standpoint of our side. It, it's, it's, it's our striving. It's what we strive for, the goal. If you look at it from the prize standpoint, it's what's viewed as the gift of God's sovereign grace, what he gives us. Put it all together and we're to press on. We're to press ahead. Never yielding to the sins of apathy and complacency, but constantly remember, remembering God's sovereign act of grace in our lives. And it compels us onward. And while we stay determined in this race to know Christ more fully and to mature spiritually, we need to constantly remember the Bible's counsel to us in Galatians 6 9. Galatians 6 9, let us not lose heart in doing good. Let us not lose heart in the race. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. Why did God put that verse in his word? Because he knows we grow weary. He knows we lose heart at times due to the trials and difficulties of the race. But he stirs up our heart's desire when we remember what he's done for us and we're motivated once again to stay in this determined pursuit, to not become complacent, to have a sense of dissatisfaction of where we are wanting more. Let's press on. As always, of course, you must make the sermons you hear personal. So ask yourself some questions. Is there any spiritual apathy in your life? Any complacency? Has it encroached in this complacency regarding things like reading and studying God's Word? Apathy about prayer and worship and fellowship with other believers? You're running the race, but do you sense and feel like you're running aimlessly? with no real spiritual passion? Have you lost your vision of what this passage talks about? Have you lost your vision of God's continued and future work in your life and his future blessing on your life? If so, the words of this text ought to be something that stirs you up. The words here of this text ought to be a rousing challenge to your complacency and your apathy. If you've become complacent, not forward-thinking anymore, mired down in the distractions of life, both good ones and bad ones, be honest with the Lord. I mean, he knows it anyway. Be honest with him. Even ask him by his spirit to search your heart, to help you be honest in the valuation of where you are, and then ask the Lord to give you something. Ask the Lord to give you a fresh passion for him and the things of God. I've had to do that before many times. Lord, stir that up in me. Give me a fresh passion for the work of your kingdom. 
and then work hard at growing. And along the way, don't let your failures be a ball and chain that you drag around. Don't let your failures incapacitate you. Listen, even our failures have a purpose in God's hands. They drive us back to Him. It's the consciousness of our of our failure, our imperfection that keeps us in communion with him to confess our sin and to express our dependence upon him, our need for him. So keep striving to grow, to excel even more. Have a sanctified ambition. Throw yourself eagerly into this race that God has called you into. Paul's certainly a good example of this for us, but there are others who come to mind who are good examples of sanctified ambition, and one is the man William Borden. Are you familiar with him? I've shared his story before many years ago. I'll share it again. Borden was born in the late 1800s, 1887. Born into a wealthy American family, his Father had become wealthy through silver mining in Colorado, I believe, made a fortune. Borden would be the heir of all that. But early in his life, his mother had come to Christ and took William to a to Moody Church in Chicago, where William Borden came to Christ through the ministry of R.A. Torrey there. And from that moment on, that young man, for him, prayer and Bible study became the hallmarks of his entire life. He graduated from high school at the age of 16, and his parents gave him a, a graduation present. Now, before I tell you what it was, I'm not encouraging you young graduates to ask your parents for this. But his parents sent him on a chaperoned trip around the world as a high school graduation present. Well, that trip around the world created an incredible burden in William Borden's heart for the world's lost and hurting people. So he wrote a letter back to his parents and informed them that he didn't care about the fortune. He wanted to spend the remainder of his life as a missionary Upon hearing the news, one of his friends remarked that he would be, quote, throwing his life away as a missionary. But Borden loved Christ. He was passionate about Christ. He only desired to devote his life to serving the Lord. So upon his return from the trip, Borden enrolled and went to Yale University, and when he finished there, he then studied and graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary. You could do that back then. And when Borden finished all of that education, he boarded a ship for China to serve as a missionary. Now, he had this passion to reach Muslim people, and because of that, on the way, he stopped in Egypt to learn Arabic, and while he was there, at 25 years of age, he contracted spinal meningitis, and within a month, he died, 25 years old. Yet, at his bedside, his friends found a note that he had written. As he lay dying, here's what the note said, no reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. He'd given up everything to follow Jesus. And he had found treasure in that, a 
treasure beyond words. God's path for you and me may not be the same one as he had for William Borden, but there is something that is equally true of each of us if we are believers, true about the Apostle Paul, true about William Borden, true about all true Christians. Christ has captured us by his amazing grace so we can never just rest on our laurels, as we say. It only makes sense that we direct our our imagination, our time, our energy, our money, our efforts toward this prize, this precious prize of knowing and loving Christ more fully all the way to the end of our lives. Truly, receiving Christ is a lifetime adventure. Now, I understand that all of this has been counseled to us as individuals. That's the focus of the passage. Paul's individual desire to grow, to press onward, but the reality of it is we don't exist alone. We are each part of a corporate body, the church, the church family. To say it differently, the Christian race of faith is a team sport. We're in it together. So there is an aspect of this thing called sanctified ambition that is proper to apply to us corporately. We start with our individual lives, but we apply it to us corporately as well. We don't want to grow complacent as individuals, and we don't want to grow complacent as a church. As a corporate body, we will be doing the same thing continually, forgetting and pressing forward, forgetting and pressing ahead. We want to be grateful for what God's done all on the way, but also pressing ahead and a desire that he would do far more through us and in us than he's already done. So there is individual pressing on that should characterize us, and there is a corporate pressing on that should characterize the church body. Father, we are grateful for how you have worked in this church and through this church for many decades now. Over 60 years, you've been faithful to this church. And Lord, people have come and gone, and leaders have come and gone, but the the thing that's tied it all together in the history has been you and your sovereign will and what you have determined for Twin City. So Lord, we thank you for all that. We thank you for the people we have. We thank you for the time and history where we are. We're trusting, Lord, that you've been guiding and directing. You've made that evident to us along the way, but we're asking for that to continue, that you would help us as leaders to understand, help the people to help us understand more clearly what is your will. That's all we want. We want to glorify you. Father, we're burdened by the increasing number of churches that are abandoning the the truth. And Lord, we're not going to do that. We are committed to being the pillar and support of the truth in this area, no matter what. So Lord, we desire to impact as many people and rescue as many people as we can. So Lord, we ask that you grant that. We know that the money on a, the cattle on a thousand hills is yours. All the money is yours ultimately. So we're asking, Lord, that you would help us to be good stewards of whatever you bless us with. But we're asking that you would do beyond what we could think or ask and move upon people to do all that you want us to do in this master plan. So we commit it in your hands for your will to be done. In our Savior's name, amen.